As we come to the ministry of the word, let us pray. Lord, give us light from your word. Draw us into the glorious mystery of the cross, that we might follow Christ, knowing that if we have died with him, we shall also live. Indeed, we shall reign with him. Amen. Our first lesson is from Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Hear now the word of God. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thus ends the first lesson. The second lesson is from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 5. Here again, God's word. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Thus ends the second lesson. Thus ends the second lesson. We are looking then at this text, which was just read from 1 Corinthians. It is on the back of your bulletin, if you have your bulletin handy. So without unpacking this very famous passage or trying to be exhaustive, I want to use the text as a springboard for a series of thoughts or meditations on and into the mystery of Christ crucified. Now, we know that crucifixion was, appears to have been invented by the Persians about 300 B.C. And later, the Romans made widespread use of it. It is probably the most agonizing form of death ever invented. The Jewish historian Josephus said, it is the most wretched of deaths. The victim is stripped naked and flogged from the shoulders down to the upper legs by a leather whip with metal balls and pieces of sheep bone. Huge chunks of flesh are torn along with muscle. A great volume of blood is lost. The victim goes into shock. Sometimes the victim dies merely from the flogging. This is perhaps the reason why Jesus, after his flogging, needs Simon the Cyrene to help him carry the cross. The victim is then paraded through the streets, carrying the cross beam to which his already mutilated body will be nailed at the place of execution. 
once hoisted onto the, to the vertical pole, the feet would be nailed, and from there it would just be time. Time and the weight of the victim's body thrusting up and down do all the rest of the brutal work. It has been said that in crucifixion, one becomes one's own executioner. It is the weight of your own body that kills you. If you want to see this laid out, there's a wonderful 70-page book by the German scholar Martin Hengel, simply called Crucifixion, if you want to see how ghastly a thing it is. In the Roman Empire, crucifixion was reserved for the vilest of criminals, for slaves, for insurrectionists. It was almost never used on a Roman citizen. Polite Roman society would never even speak of it. The great Cicero said that the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of the Roman citizen, but from his thoughts and his eyes and his ears. And a religion, a religion whose leader and founder was crucified, could only be treated with utter contempt. The Roman historian Tacitus called the Christian faith a pernicious superstition. Another Roman, Pliny, called it a perverse and extraordinary superstition. And from the point of view of the Jews, it was the very sign that the victim was accursed. That the victim was cut off or abandoned or God forsaken. There was nothing sacred about the cross. Quite the opposite, in fact. The cross was irreligious. It was godless. The cross, to the Jewish mind, proves, it proves that Jesus is not the Messiah. The law is clear. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. One one Jew who had family members who died at Auschwitz told a Christian minister that to ask him to glory in the cross would be like asking him to glory in a gas chamber. That's how visceral the hatred of the concept could and can still be. We are so used to it that we can scarcely feel the repugnance. Christ, the very title Christ, means anointed king. Christ crucified. That's an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. Christ crucified is like saying godly murderer. You can have a Messiah or you can have a crucified criminal, but you cannot have them both. Or to summarize from our text, it is Foolishness. Foolishness to Gentiles, to the Greek mind, and a stumbling block, a great scandal to Jews. And its folly and its shame are universal. To Jews and to Gentiles. That's the whole world. There is no third category of people of whom Paul says, and these people will find the message of the cross perfectly logical and compelling. 
they will thank you so much for sharing it with them. You see, having lived in a country with a fair amount of Christian presence and influence, many of us have forgotten the deep offense of the cross. We think, well, you know, any decent, right-thinking person will see the beauty of it. I mean, who doesn't love the cross of Jesus? It's un-American. And yet, it remains a permanent, universal outrage to the natural man. An outrage. And here is the thing, so astonishing about the early church in the eyes of the Roman world. The Christians not only spoke of it, shockingly, they celebrated it. They gloried in it. This would make the Christian community be some kind of theater of the absurd in the eyes of the ancient Greco-Roman people. And the absurdity of this, of this Christ crucified, remains at the heart of Christian identity. This is for us not weakness, but power. Not folly, but wisdom. Or as Paul says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In some mysterious way, this weakness, this folly, is the epicenter of Christian power and wisdom. It's the epicenter of Christian power and wisdom because this is the site. The cross is the site, the gospel declares. The place of God's apocalyptic intervention into the world to save and liberate the world from everything that colludes to enslave and distort and destroy human beings from sin and death and the law, from the spiritual forces of this present darkness. Something about the shame and the ugliness of the cross answers to the magnitude of the monsters it is designed to vanquish. Thus Paul says, I do not want to preach the cross or the gospel in such a way to empty the cross of its power. The message or the word of the cross, he says, is the power of God to those who are being saved made whole, liberated, caused to blossom and to flourish. Notice, notice this, that the cross does not remain in the past. It is, present tense, now, it is the power of God unto salvation. It's a living divine force when it's proclaimed. And that's why it's not only at the center of our identity as Christians. It is at the center of Christian proclamation. The Jews want signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. But Paul says, we preach. We proclaim Christ crucified. The power of the cross is unleashed in the preaching of the cross. The foolishness of God in the cross is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God in the cross, stronger, Paul says, than human strength. Somehow, in the mystery of God's design, in the mysterious work of the Spirit, when this event is preached, it has saving power. In the bloody, mutilated body of Jesus, 
executed as a common criminal, God outwits the wise men of this age and overpowers its strong men and works his mighty apocalyptic triumph. And thus the cross achieves what all the gods of human wisdom and power cannot achieve. The salvation of those whom God calls. Now, I want you to notice something, something that's missing from all of this, or at least it appears to be missing. Hearing this, we might ask, where is the resurrection? Where is Christ risen and ascended and enthroned as king? Why speak of the cross as power and not the resurrection as power? Why all of this we preach Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified? Now, of course it's true that neither Paul nor the New Testament would ever separate the cross from the resurrection. Ever. Part of what he's doing here is he's addressing a church in Corinth which did not glory in the cross. For them, for them in Corinth, the cross was a thing of the past. They were, they thought, already living in the resurrection, in the age of resurrection, already victorious, already kings, already rich, already everything. They already had everything they needed. And as such, they're just an extreme example of something which has perpetually plagued the church through history, namely a desire to define the Christian life in such a way that bypasses the utter and the permanent centrality of the cross. And to address this aversion to the cross, Paul says provocatively at the end of our passage, he says that he resolved in Corinth to know nothing. Nothing. I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Now, it's not that he forgot all the other aspects of the faith, but he's determined to keep the cross central and supreme. For him, for Paul, for the apostles, the Christian life is nothing but Christ and him crucified. This means that what happened on the cross for our sakes does not remain out there. What happened on the cross for our sakes does not remain separated from us. And here, things hit much closer to home. Jesus alone, of course, Jesus alone, of course, is our Redeemer. And yet, he calls us into the mystery of his sufferings. We partake of the cross across the whole of our Christian lives. It is never set aside. It is never past tense. There is no, there's no appeal to the resurrection or to Christ as king that can be allowed to bypass our participation in the scandal, the shame, the glory, the weakness, the agony, the suffering of the cross. Let me try and distill this. Here is why Paul can talk about knowing nothing, nothing but Christ crucified. How can he do this? Well, it's because in this age, the power of Christ's resurrection is known only in the weakness of the cross, only in conformity to his death. 
We don't have a cross phase or cross stage of the Christian life and then move on to a resurrection phase. I've said on numerous occasions, Jesus never says, take up your resurrection and follow me. Never says it. Repeatedly says, take up your cross and follow me. And John Calvin, who I'm going to quote from at a little bit of length here, uh, said, we must ask what we are summoned to when Christ says, take up your cross. He replies, those whom the Lord has chosen must prepare for a hard, laborious, troubled life, a life full of many and various kinds of evils, it being the will of our Heavenly Father to exercise his people this way. He continues, Having begun this course with Christ the firstborn, he continues it toward all his children. For though that son was dear to him above others, yet we see that far from being treated gently and indulgently, we may say that his whole life was nothing else than a kind of perpetual cross. Why then should we exempt ourselves from that condition to which Christ our head behooved to submit, especially when he submitted on our account that he might in his own person exhibit a model of patience. Or as Calvin puts it elsewhere, as he passed to celestial glory through a labyrinth of many woes, so we too are conducted there through various tribulations. And Calvin is simply echoing Paul here. In this age, we have no access to resurrection glory apart from daily dying with Christ. There are some astonishing texts in Paul here that we need to have ears to hear afresh. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, we are always, always, he says, carrying about in our bodies the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be manifested in us. That's knowing the power of the resurrection by conformity to his death. There's nothing grim about this. This is not grimness, but it is not chest-thumping triumph either. Paul's whole conception of his ministry, his whole conception of Christian existence, is shaped by our participation, our sharing in Christ's afflictions, as the means to our comfort and joy. So that he can say, here's another astonishing text. We fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in our sufferings. The body is destined to suffer as the head suffered. And this lends even greater sobriety to Good Friday. We stand and we tremble at the foot of Jesus' cross. But do you realize this? That you are called into the mystery of that weakness and that folly and that suffering. And that turning of the other cheek. In the age to come, it will be different. We will live in resurrection glory without the agony of the cross. It will be behind us as it is behind Jesus. But for now, we know nothing but Christ crucified. We preach nothing but Christ crucified. And nothing but Christ crucified is our life and our wisdom. For us... There is no power that is not cruciform power, meaning power in the shape of the cross. For us, there is no power 
That is not power in and through weakness. And so let us affirm with Paul, and against the age, God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to boast in this cross means we glory in it. We revel in it. We trust in it. We rejoice in it. We preach it. We live by it. Because this contemptible folly, right, this divine madness, this public shame is our glory. Determine then, determine, as Paul determined, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. For this is the power of God unto salvation. Amen.